If you honestly don't have money for a book, just take one, all right? And um, yeah, if, if you honestly don't have money for a book, take one. So it's so good to be with you again. It's been, I don't know, man, three years, I think, um, with the virus. And uh, get to greet my, my friend Dennis, who uh, first met him when I talked a lot about being on the streets of Detroit, and Denny and I just connected like that, and we've been brothers ever since. It's so good to see your face. And, uh, and Mac keeps hanging around. I don't know. Um, it's pretty good to see you, too. Um, so appreciate it. I don't know if Justin, last week's speaker, I don't know if he's here or not, but uh, appreciated his talk as he um, tried to help us understand what the prayer of faith, I think, in James 5 was talking about in the midst of our brokenness. And it's really broken. Over 200 mass shootings so far in the United States this year. Two of the most recent ones, and, and many of the others, have been, of course, racially motivated. We lost 10 brothers and sisters of color in Buffalo, sons and daughters of God, because of a young man who had gotten so twisted um, that he had gotten involved in white supremacy and uh, took a gun and just wasted lives. And then there was an Asian brother um, I think he had sympathies for the China mainland who went into a Taiwanese church just a day or so later, I think, and killed uh, someone and, and injured five. There would have been more except for the person that was killed who grabbed him, got shot in the process, and, and stopped the rest of the carnage. And then, of course, yesterday, with 19 students, two adults, and it's fascinating to me that no one mentions that there's also an 18-year-old who is so jacked up that on his 18th birthday uh, bought two assault rifles and uh, within a week was wasting little children. Uh, he also is now in eternity. It's a mess. And I, I, I didn't like it when I was growing up and people would say, well, you know, it's worse than I've ever seen it, you know, because I thought, are you kidding me, man? I'm 20 years old. Quit telling me, quit, quit with the gloom and doom. But I got to tell you, I've never been a doom and gloom guy, but I'm, I'm telling you, man, it is as bad as I have ever seen it in my lifetime. This is insanity. It's inhumanity. Did you know that suicide in the last... 20 years, or uh, 20 years amongst youth is up 50%. Kids just say, why, why live, man? There's nothing. Did you know, Mac, uh, in the last year, 108,000 drug overdose deaths, deaths in America. I, I could go on, but you get it. The anger, the rage, the depression, the hopelessness. I'm even seeing it amongst leaders. I spoke to 100 women pastors and leaders from across the country. A few weeks ago, I was the only uh, male speaker out of, out of four. In fact, when I got up on a Saturday night, the, the woman who asked me to speak before she introduced me, she, she just paused and she looked at 100 women and she goes, there's a boy in the house. 
And as I apologized to these sisters in behalf of us as men who, for whatever reason, have often wounded them, the audience got quiet and the sisters began to sob. Because they, though Genesis 1 says we're partners in the gospel, equal, equally created uh, by a God who apparently has uh, both estrogen and testosterone in his being, they have felt so marginalized and, and often have felt hopeless. Like, where's my place at the table? Where can I partner with my brothers to push back the darkness in our world? And then with what I do with pastors and our team that's coming in today to be present to pastors in the three or four county area, the recent stats that I've seen um, tell us that about 40% of clergy today are basically saying, I'm done. I, I just can't. And these are the healers. The wounded healers that are intended to push back the darkness. So what are we going to do, brothers? What did Jesus and Paul do? I can tell you one thing they did not do, ever, is to seek a political solution to this darkness. I, you know, my dad uh, had a vocational call to get into politics. I appreciate that. That's different than putting our hope in some kind of human government to push back this pain that emanates from hell. Well, I can tell you what Jesus did do. He preached the kingdom of God. And I can tell you what Paul not only did, but what he said in Romans chapter 1, right before that long list of the way Roman culture, the way the ancient Near Eastern world was in the pits themselves back in the day. This is what Paul said. He said, I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jews and then for the Greeks. That word that's translated salvation, I, I like better the translation deliver or deliverance. Because when we think of salvation, especially in evangelical culture, we think of maybe salvation from some kind of eternal doom, some kind of eternal punishment. But the word means anything that the enemy is perpetrating upon us. From the events recently to something that is very dark, maybe in your own journey, maybe something that's followed you for a long, long time. Paul says, I only know of one power that can push back that darkness across the board that the darkness cannot win against. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Which he goes on to describe, not as four spiritual laws. I mean, God bless the four spiritual laws. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and the love that took him there. Both proclaimed, spoken about, and lived out. So the power to deliver that Paul's talking about and that he lived and I think Jesus preached in his own ministry, it's not in a political party. It's not in some kind of particular theology amongst the 40,000 denominations that have come to us since the time of the apostles. It's not in anyone's particular version of Christian morality. And we all have our lists, don't we? If people would just do this and not do that, then all should be well. That's not where the power is. 
The power, according to Paul, is in the cross of Jesus Christ, proclaimed and lived with the same powerful love that took Jesus to the cross, kept him on the cross, and when he said, it is finished, crushed the powers of darkness. Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright said that since the cross, love is the new power. David Crowder in 2018 penned these words, it's a long road up Golgotha Hill, but there ain't no stopping love. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to get that done, my brothers, in our fear-based, divided, accusatory, defensive, angry, violent world that we live in today? I've come to believe that about seven chapters later, in the same book where he announced the good news of Jesus Christ, he gives us an often overlooked relational invitation that I've come to believe is our launching pad for our healing work in our broken world. And this is what he says in a chapter, chapter 8. For those of you who have studied that, that particular letter, it's in, a, it's in a section where he's talking about how the Holy Spirit works in us to push back the darkness. And this is one of the central core realities that he gives us from the power of the Spirit. He says, for you, talking to the Roman believers, but to us here 2,000 years later, he said, when you came to Christ, you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. It's not about being locked down in your spirit. It's not about being afraid. He said, but you've received the Holy Spirit of adoption by whom we now cry out, Abba, Father. So, several years ago, I was teaching on the, at the West Coast at a little Bible college. Kids would take a semester off and just go, or maybe two semesters off, and go to the Bible College and get some biblical training. And so, one day I was talking on this very passage, and I asked if anybody in the room had been adopted. And in a room full of 30 people, I thought, probably not. But a little girl at the very back raised her hand. And uh, she said that she had been adopted. And I said, can you meet me after uh, class for coffee? I would like to talk about your story. And she sat down with me. Um, I'm going to call her Nadia just to protect her, her um, anonymity. She said that she was in a Bulgarian orphanage back in the day. Right after, I think, the fall of communism in those Eastern Bloc countries, she said it was a dark and dank place. There was much sexual abuse, almost no resources. And she remembers going in and out with all the kids. Uh, she didn't really know what was going on, but they'd go out, they would line up, somebody would come in, point at a, a child, take that child, and then the rest of them would go back to their, to their living hell. One day, she was nine, they came in and gave her the first dress that she'd ever had, kind of a ragtag piece of clothing, but they gave her her first dress, and then... They took her into the shower. She said, Pastor Kevin, it was literally just a few drops of water coming out of this pipe. And then they took her out to the foyer, and there was this Caucasian couple that was standing there. She couldn't understand what they were saying. She just didn't really know what was happening, but, but they took her and put her in a car. She'd almost never been in a car, then went to an airport. Are you kidding me? She'd never seen an airplane. They flew all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, all across the United States to Oregon, where these two people were from. Very little conversation because, again, they didn't understand each other's languages. And they took her up. They gave her a bath. They gave her some new pajamas. They put her into bed. And Nadia told me, she said, Pastor Kevin, I, I didn't really know what was going on. But, but when 
they put me in bed and they leaned over me and this nice young man, somehow we understood each other. When he said, sweetheart, from now on, after tonight, you can call me daddy. She said, then Pastor Kevin, I knew that I was home. I think that's what Paul is trying to communicate to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, when he says, we too have received the spirit of adoption by whom now our hearts from home cry out, Abba, Father. Paul invites us to live this powerful gospel of the cross and the love that took Jesus there, to live it in our broken world as beloved sons. Our identity as we live the gospel, our home base is not our denomination. It's not our title. Pastor, president of what's happening now, whatever your title is, whatever you like to moniker yourself with. It's not the labels conservative or liberal. It's not whether you're educated or not. It's not even our ethnicity. It's not even our Christianity which is so jacked up, I don't even like to use the word anymore. These other identities are not home, my brothers. To use the language of the prodigal son story, they are a piece of the far country. They don't, they don't empower the gospel. They diminish and distort the gospel. In these identities, there is no power at all. The power of the gospel is unleashed into the brokenness of our world when we live as beloved sons. So, here's three ways that I think this works. And, and there's probably a lot more, but I'm not smart enough to figure them out. But this is what has come to me in the last several years. First of all, as beloved sons, when we, when we get into the, the darkness in our world and live as sons... We are free to live not by discipline. I'm so tired of that word in Christianity. Not by discipline, but by the desperation that comes to a, to a heart that's falling in love. My daughter Andrea was just, I'll, I'll never forget this. We forget, I guess, a lot of things that happen between us and our kids. But when I would come home from church, she was like two, three, four years old. And literally she would run to the window and yell out uh, to, to uh, her mommy and through the window thinking I could hear her, Daddy's home, Daddy's home. As if she was saying, Abba, Abba. There was no discipline in her movement toward me. It was about desperation. It was about an empty heart that longed to be with her father and to live from the safety and the belovedness of, of her father's arms and love. Maverick City sings a song, uh, there's a lovesick longing deep inside my soul, a desperate hunger that won't let me go. And then they close this particular part of the song with only you, oh God, can satisfy the heart that is desperate. Guys, this isn't about, you know, I, when, when I get in men's groups, when I, when I go to men's retreats, we're all, we're all ready for the man up sermon, which is, you know, basically, you know, uh, you know accessing our testosterone to really try harder to grit our teeth, to flex our muscles, and to somehow use that chutzpah, if you will, 
to push back the powers of darkness. Just keep trying harder. Go to another Bible study. Get another Bible translation. Just learn more. Know more. How's that work for us, guys? I mean, when you think that what we're facing is a darkness that comes from the second most powerful being in the universe, according to the Scripture. Yes, he's an angel of light, but powerful he is. And we're just going to go, see this? I went to Bible study this week, man. You... And it seems that Christianity is constantly trying to provide this answer of just discipline yourself. Just try harder. Just be more disciplined. Just get it done. Just do it. And that philosophy, my brothers, in my view, makes God our cheerleader. Makes him our spiritual life coach. And makes the battle with hell all about us. But when we're desperately in love, when we live with a desperation in our heart, that emptiness that we know can only be filled by the one who calls himself our Abba. I mean, that's what David knew in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. My brothers, there was no discipline there. There was a heart that desperately longed for the love of his father that he knew would set him free to push back the powers of darkness in his life. I probably told you this story about Keisha. It was in the Detroit newspaper a few years back and it was a story from 20 years ago when a young African-American woman walked into the middle of a Klan rally at, at, in Ann Arbor and uh, one of her friends was just coming away. She had some rocks. She gave him to Keisha and Keisha knew Jesus and she said, you know, throw some rocks for me. And Keisha just silently let them fall to the ground. And then she, as she moved toward the, uh, the rally, she began to see some commotion. And one of the Klansmen had fallen to the ground. And folks who were anti-Klan were just kicking him. Just beating the living daylights out of him. Really trying to kill him. And Keisha, through her young, female, African-American body, on this white brother who was there protesting her right to exist. And the minute that she threw her body upon this white brother who was so jacked up, the crowd backed off. The darkness receded. And when Keisha was introduced late, and you know, interviewed later, it's like, well, what, you know, how did you prepare? What books had you read? She goes, this wasn't about any of that. It was like love picked me up and dropped me on that clansman. Wow. My brothers, it's not about discipline. All right, have a little discipline. Your wife says, well, you'd mow the lawn or if, if your job says you need to get here at 8 and not 8.15, fine. Give us 20% of discipline. But guys, if we really care, if we are weeping over what's been happening in our culture, and if we're not weeping, what's died? Brothers, I ain't your judge, but I'm saying if you're not weeping over 20 10-year-olds, what has died inside of us? I ain't judging you. I don't know you. 
But if the weeping wants to turn into action, we can't just go do some curls. At some point, we've got to recognize the vacuum in our heart that's longing for a God who has chosen us out of the orphanage of life and said, you are mine. Let that love saturate us and motivate us and encourage us and empower us with the gospel of love that will mitigate the powers of darkness, even in a situation like young Keisha found herself in 25 years ago. Are you, are you trapping with me? Here's a second way that I think this understanding our adoption as sons impacts our, our impact in the world. When we know that we're sons, we're free to love others and not be afraid. Better answer that. It might be the Lord. <laughs> Paul's so clear. When you, when you receive Christ, you didn't get a spirit again of bondage that is a result of fear. Because fear is always bondage. When I'm afraid, I'm stuck, I'm shut down, I'm locked down. I might look like I'm, I've got it going on, but really inside I'm locked down. All my responses are out of being locked down. These other identities that we've talked about that are from the far country, they make us afraid. They give us an us versus them mentality. What if they win? And what if we lose? Whatever that means. That's fear, brothers. That is fear. There's no power in fear. We can't live the gospel being afraid. They make us defensive. They make us controlling. They make us angry. They make us divisive. Those other identities make us feel threatened. They cause us to live in bondage. This is my opinion. I mean, who am I? But you asked me to speak, so I'm going to tell you what I think. I think the church, and I mean the church, lives here today in that kind of fear. And it's one of the reasons we have no power. Because we don't approach the darkness. We approach the darkness as, hey, I'm from the left. I'm from the right. And the enemy goes... Praise God. Because there's no power in that to push back what I'm bringing your way. So, before we moved to Denver, uh, we knew we had to get a car. We had a couple of really old beaters. So the one we took in to trade in, hopefully, and, and we were able to do it. And we bought a 2017 Toyota Highlander. Man, that, that car maker's making some money. i got to tell you that, because... This car is, well, it was way too expensive. It was then and it is now. But anyway, we had to have a car we liked. It. We wanted to get all six of our grandkids in the car. So it has all the seats. That's why we bought it. And so the guy that was the finance guy, you know, we're just talking. We're talking through the numbers. We're talking about our lives. And I think he kind of caught it that I followed Jesus. I didn't announce it to him and I didn't bark at him about it. But he kind of caught it that I followed Jesus. He goes, you know what? From what I hear you saying, man, you ministered in Detroit, and you know, you, you talk about Jesus. I want to introduce you to a guy. So he wanted to introduce me to his top salesman. So he runs me over, and I'm, I'm figuring out what's happening. Doesn't, if you see the human being that wants to do this, then you know what's going on. He wants to put the two Christian types together and see what they do. 
So he stands off, he introduces me to this guy, six foot four, former professional hockey player, Canadian, I believe, but anyway, professional hockey player. And we shake hands, well, kind of shook hands at the height of COVID. And without even saying, how's your family? He says, so how do you feel about this COVID stuff, man? He goes, you know, my church, you know what I told my pastor? I told him, if he's going to be afraid, I'm out. If we're going to do that mass thing, I'm out of here. So what I want to say, and I said, you know, I mean, I'm a fairly good sized guy, but this guy, man, I, you know, I wanted to pop him one at that point, but. It wasn't just Jesus that kept me from doing it. I just, I don't think I could have handled the business. But, but I wanted to try. And I said, whoa, whoa, bro. I work with pastors, man. And I know it's a lot more complicated than what you're, what you're sharing right now. So, you know, he goes, yeah, but what? I said, hey, really? So we, we don't really have time. And so I backed off. Here's the deal. That guy was acting all macho. That brother was a scared little boy inside. And what happens, my friends, when we're afraid, we can't love because when we're afraid, it's about me. When I'm afraid, I can't be about you. I've got to be about me because I'm protecting me and my ideologies and my stuff. So I don't have time to see you in your pain. And so in that particular situation, that little finance guy who connected two sons of God to see what it was going to look like, he got lost in this big, strong, macho man, ex-Canadian hockey player, believer's fear, because he wasn't living as a son in that moment. Because when you live as a son, you're taking your belovedness and you're giving it away to the world. So let's, let's just take the abortion issue for a moment. This might be my last time at Hello, we'll see. <laughs> Brothers, man, again, I don't know you as individuals, so don't take this as judgment. I'm just telling you what I see in my journeys, what I feel, what I hear. We're afraid. I hear, pe- I hear people saying, we think that if we can just defeat Roe v. Wade, that all will be well in the universe. Honestly, really? Man, I've worked in the hood. Can I tell you what's going to happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned? And I, look, let's make this clear. I am against abortion. I believe life begins at, uh, at conception. Don't you go out of here saying that, you know, that guy, he's a liberal. Don't you dare do that. I'm trying to follow the Jesus of this book the best I know how. What's going to happen is there's going to be a whole lot of abortions. They're just going to be in the back alley. I don't know what to do with Roe v. Wade, but this I know. What if followers of Jesus Christ were so launched by their sonship, their belovedness, that they were in touch with the brokenness of the world all around them, in the city, in the suburbs, in the countryside. There's all kinds of, of sisters and brothers and sisters wanting to know what to do with a particular pregnancy. What if we were so, what if we were so launched by the love of God in us as sons that we were in touch with all of these human beings who are struggling? 
So that instead of preaching to them about Psalm 51 or about Roe v. Wade, what if we could just offer them the love with which we have been loved? And what if N.T. Wright is right? Since the cross, love is the new power. What if that love offered genuinely for that human being would push back the darkness that is trying to convince folks that the only way out is to destroy the life of their baby? What about that? What about church? Stop hiding behind Roe v. Wade. And realize that we are the sons and daughters of God, chosen from that great eternal orphanage with love to mitigate that kind of darkness in our world. I wonder sometimes if Jesus, you know, he, he went on purpose to see the woman at the well. It said, the old King James used to say, he had to go, he must needs go to um, Samaria, which wasn't true. From Jerusalem, any self-respecting Jew would go around to avoid hanging with the Samaritans. He said, i got to go to Samaria. You know why? Because his love caused him to see a broken-hearted daughter of God. He saw her. He said, i got to go be with her. And when he sat there, he knew she'd been married five times, living with the guy number six, and if that... That's a little a bit scandalous today, but back then that was off the hook. He didn't preach, he didn't lecture, he didn't try to appeal to the Pharisees of the Samaritan community to try to fix her. He didn't try to go to Rome to legislate. He just was present with the power of God's love in that woman's life. And and he he offered her living water for her wound and her thirst and her pain. And on the spot, she started to heal. I often wonder, what if she would have said, I also have had a couple of abortions? Yeah, I'll bet you Jesus would have said, well, now that you come to that part of the story, I'm out. In fact, guys, you think they didn't have abortions in first century Israel? The world isn't waiting for a really way to be overturned. Vote your conscience if you have a chance. I do. It's a privilege. What the broken world is waiting for is men and women to realize their sonship and their daughterhood and to be overwhelmed by his love and to take it into the brokenness without fear. Because when we get afraid, we hide behind our ideas and our Bible verses and our theology, something that Paul and Jesus never did. By the way, you know, I've told enough bad stories myself. Can I tell a good one? Just to show that I'm not all bad. <clears throat> I don't just talk and then act bad. I, occasionally God uses me. I, I know of at least two young ladies. My time in Detroit. And it may have been true in the suburbs as well. Sometimes... Yeah, I'm not even going to go there, but I'm just going to say in my time in Detroit, I had a couple of young ladies that came into me saying, I'm pregnant, and I'm, I went out. Oh, look, I'm a middle-aged white man. What, what, do I, what do these young girls, what do, they, what, do they, what do they even believe about me? But I've been there just long enough to show that I'm a, I'm a beloved son. That's it. That's all I am, man. Forget the pastor title. I'm a beloved son of God. I'm an adopted son. 
And I sat with those two young women. I never once took out the Bible. I never once preached at them. I just did what I thought love dictated at the moment. Both of those young women are, are mothers of, of children today that are flourishing on the east side of Detroit. Didn't mention Roe v. Wade. Others, what if we lived with beloved sons? But this might be my last time. I'm going to keep going. Um, what about critical race theory? And I, you know, I know that not all men and women of color are for critical race theory, but I know most of the time it's the Caucasian community that gets all afraid and defensive, and all they want to do is debate the ideas. Just debate the ideas, and then did you know this? Did you know that? Did you know this? You know what? You know what staying in the ideas is about? It's fear. What happens is when we stay in the ideas, we can't see the person that just wants to talk about their story. What if we were so filled with the love of God that when we sat down with someone who didn't look like us, whether it's a white person with a brother or sister of color person of color with a white person? What if we were so full of the love of God that instead of waiting for that moment when that person shares a bit of ideology that we're so afraid of that we have to pounce, what if we just stayed in that secure place where God's love is holding us and to do what Peter said, just feel with them. All of a sudden, honestly, the debate about critical race theory goes away. In fact, if the body of Christ would live that, critical race theory would go away. Because if there's systemic racism, and I happen to believe that there is, that would crumble too. Just like the body of Christ in Paul's day, Paul didn't go to Rome and try to elect his favorite senator. He realized that the gospel was going to crumble the darkness of the Roman Empire, replacing it with the kingdom of God from the inside out. It's never in the history of the church been about top-down. Every time we go top-down, we get into trouble. We are in the devil's handbag. But when we just love, man, we find somebody's feet, man, and we love there. We just love because we're loved, because we're sons. We're not conservatives and liberals and men and women. We're just sons and daughters of God. And we're overwhelmed by that love that fills our emptiness, that takes us to the brokenness of our world. And that's where God says, I'm going to do my work. By the way, by the way, this is an aside. You want to listen to the best thing I've heard on critical race theory? Denver Theological Seminary's president and a black pastor who's on their board, they do like a 30-minute talk on where is the gospel in critical race theory, according to those two brothers, and where is it not? One of the best things I've seen. If you're really, look, if you're all about ideas, go there. Don't be afraid. Just listen. Take it in. But honestly, I don't really care what you think about critical race theory. And I don't think God does either. You know what I think? He just wants us to take that belovedness and take it to the human beings around us. And then that systemic racism and all forms of prejudice will die. Because they can't stand against the love of God. What about Trump and Biden, man? I, I mean, I've, I've got so many different kinds of friends. One day it's like, 
You know, I want to, you know, I want to blow up Trump. And the next day, I want to blow up Biden. You know what I want to do with, I'll just take the one that I don't like very much. Donald Trump. Okay, I don't like him very much for a lot of reasons. That was a beloved son. And you say, how could you call him a beloved son? You don't know if he believes or not. Did Christ die for him? Yes, sir. Has this sin been paid for? He may not know he's a son yet, but he's already been adopted. So, Travis, would you stand up, please? This is what I want to do with my friend Donald Trump. Now, he's not really my friend. Just, he's a guy. He's a guy. People come up to me and say, what do you want to do with, with Mr. Trump? And I'll say, you really want to know? And if they're open to this, I'll go, this is what I want to do. Donald, sir, you're in a lot of pain. And you're puking that pain on everybody. And you don't have to live that way anymore. Let me walk with you, man. I'm nobody, but I will walk with you. Let's see if we can come out of the darkness together because of the God who loves us. That's what I want to do. You notice Travis pushed me there, but I'm not going to <laughs> Fear marginalizes. Fear hides. Fear attacks. Love helps us to see the human beings. Moves us toward them with the love of God that will push back the darkness no matter what. Last thing, last thing. Not discipline, desperation. Not fear, love. Not safety, but suffering. Just a few verses after Paul talks about our adoption, he says, because we're children, we're going to be called to suffer with Christ. We are called to follow a Jesus who love, whose love, whose love, whose love called him to the cross, and he calls us to the same. My sense is the church lives in a perpetual state of panic, lusting for safety. We lust for safety. What's going to make us safe in America? Who can we get behind? Who can we get behind? What party? What ideology? What viewpoint can we get behind and then attach Jesus to it? Honestly, so we'll be safe. So we don't have to suffer. When we're falling in love with a God who has adopted us as his sons, we begin to see people and love them, get this, no matter what the cost. We become willing, like Jesus with his love to the cross, we become willing to suffer for them no matter what it costs us. What did Jesus say? Uh, even the Son of Man has not come to be served, yes, sir. but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Suffering love is when Jesus becomes most visible, my brothers. 
Did you ever think about that soldier at the cross? Might have been, probably was, one of the soldiers pounding the spikes into Jesus' hands. But after he watched him suffer, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Why do you think everybody likes Mother Teresa? Why do you think everybody respects her from Protestants to Orthodox, the Orthodox to the Roman Catholic community to Buddhists and Hindus? Why do they respect Mother Teresa? They see something of God in her when she's on the streets of Calcutta being willing to scrape maggots out of the wounds of human beings. That, As a daughter of God, she just can't let them suffer any longer. Even if it was just one, she just can't let them suffer. People see Jesus there while we're barking about some issue and trying to overpower another human being to believe in our viewpoint because we're so afraid of suffering. When when the love of God, my brothers, I'm just telling you, when it gets a hold of us, um, we, we, we want to do whatever it takes to love that human being that is in front of us, that's under the control of the powers of darkness. And I think one of the reasons we're able to have courage in that suffering is because I think we know our Abba is with us. Do you notice at the end of that verse, he says, that causes our hearts to cry out. You know what the Greek word uh, for cry out means? I've probably told you this before. Cry out. It's really it's very sophisticated. <laughs> It means literally, it doesn't mean like, oh, hi, Lord. It's like, Abba! So I take it to me. In the joy, we're like, thank you, Abba. I mean, everything is Him. He's our Father. It's Him. Not circumstance, it's Him. And in the darkness, Abba, are you with me? Father, I'm your son. This is, there's pain. I'm afraid. Are you with me? Our hearts cry out, Abba, which takes us into the suffering because we know we're not alone. I wonder when Paul was facing the axe for the second time after being betrayed by this guy named Alexander the coppersmith who he talked about just a few verses earlier. He goes, beware of that guy, man. He's poisoned. And then he says, I'm getting ready to face the Roman tribunal and no one is with me. Remember that passage? Last words he wrote. Can you imagine all that ministry? Last words, I'm alone. And then he paused. Remember what he said? Oh, but the Lord is standing with me. I wonder when they led him to the chalking block, if in his heart, what he wasn't crying out was, Abba, Father, be close to me. As out of love, I suffered this one last time. The same will be true for us. But if we don't, Minister to our broken world as beloved sons. Welcome to a life of fear, hiding, and living in lust for safety, and congratulating yourselves on being good Christians, when really, that's not what we're living at all. So how to conclude this thing. The other day, my daughter, Andrea, um, he sent me this video. It was, have you heard of the pub choir? Anybody heard of the pub choir? It must be a young person thing. Uh, it's in Australia. It's in Brisbane, Australia. And 
This is either a very big pub or the pub is here and it's outside the pub, but they call it the pub choir. And there were, there were probably 1,000 to 2,000 folk in this choir being led by somebody up on the stage. And you know what they were singing? They were singing the Bee Gees. How deep is your love? I mean, 2,000 voices. How deep is your love? I really mean to learn because we're living in a world of fools breaking us down when they all should let us be because we belong to you and me. And their arms, I don't know where the Bee Gees went to seminary, but that's not bad stuff. <laughs> right, brother? And they're, you know, they got their arms around each other and the tears, guys, the tears are running down their face. And I'm thinking, they're looking for, they're looking for that love. But then I was like, they don't know the lover. How are they going to know the lover? Unless they see it in us. I'll close with this story. I've probably told you this story before. It's really true, isn't it? The older you get, you just keep telling the same story. Chuck <laughs> says we get better at it. I have a close friend. Uh, he's a pastor as well, a retired pastor now. And in his family system, <clears throat> when he starts telling one of his old stories and his kids are there, all one of them has to do is go like this. <laughs> and he goes, oh, Chuck. Because really, he tells them all the time. So maybe I'm that guy, but indulge me for this last two minutes. So when I went to Detroit, which is, you know, 80, 85 percent African American, and particular part of Detroit that I went to, and that the first book talks about, um, it was high crime area, high drug area, and just a lot of poverty. Some really amazing middle class families, but there was just a lot. It was pervasively um, very poor and very uh, wounded. And here I'm this white guy, I'm this middle-aged white guy coming in and honestly, given the racial history of America, I should not have expected anyone to give me the benefit of any doubt. And if you don't understand that as white folks and you don't get the history of race in America and how it's impacted every human being, most of us as white folks, we don't even know it, but people of color impacted. I met with one of our sisters, this is a rabbit trail, but in the last church, the one I got fired from, I met with a sister one. No, no, it was in a church in, a, in Detroit. She, she was a teacher. She was a principal at a local school, and she said, can we talk, Kev? She'd been with us for 15 years. We got together. She said, can I just say this? Appreciate all you're doing racially. And, and, and we need white partners, Caucasian partners, to partner with us in the body of Christ. So, so glad. And she says, you know, I don't know if you know this, Kev, but when you get up in the morning, you get to choose to think about race or not. She goes, I don't get to choose. I have to be on guard. I have to be aware that race is everywhere in America. So I, I didn't know that completely, but I knew it enough to know that I should not have been given the benefit of the doubt in that community, and probably in many people's eyes and hearts, I wasn't. Even when I went to speak to the women the other night, after a, 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 a nice introduction, a couple of women came up later and they were like, really? Why not this cat speak to us, man? Why not one of our own, man? Because she, they've been so wounded by men. So, so my talk, all I did was try to love them so that they would know that I'm not just trying to be a guy. I'm trying to be a beloved son. 
Anyway, I walk up on the porch of our church this one day, and there's a bunch of brothers standing out in front of our uh, a church, and they're just, you know, having a good time talking. And I thought, Lord, I am not, as a son, going to walk one more time into the church building without talking to these young men. I'm just not. And my plan was, had none. I'm, I'm, I'm an adopted son. These are adopted sons. I don't know if they know it. I walked up, stuck my middle-aged white body right in the middle of those brothers, and a few of them were like, hey, good to see you, man, and went like this. But one guy, his name was Derek, he stepped out, and we started having a conversation. And we talked, and I said, I'm the pastor of this place right here. If you ever want to chat, I'd love to hang out, just get to know you. That was it. So okay, pastor. And then I took him. Travis, one more illustration. And then I took him, and I went like this. I took him in. And it felt like five minutes later to him, I was still doing that. Yeah, see, see how you didn't laugh? Nice bro. You didn't laugh because it's uncomfortable, right? But I don't know why, I just hung on to that young man. And finally there was an awkward separation. I went into the church and Derek went on about his life. We got to know each other the next couple of years. I think he might have gotten into some trouble for a while. And then he went to college and, and, and got really up and out of the community. Uh, in, in the best sense of the word, and came back one time to an afternoon Bible study that we were having for the young people in the neighborhood. And um, he's like a hero. He came in, all, everything stopped. No Bible study. We're just, I'm sitting there watching. Folk just gather around him. He's like a star. They were just loving him. They were laughing. I was laughing with them. All of a sudden, he stops, and he looks over at me. And he says, Pastor Kevin, remember that time when you first met me, and you came out and hugged me like that? I said, yeah. He goes, that was weird, man. <laughs> he goes, well, we're not used to hugging like that, bro. And I said, I know, Derek. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> I laughed at myself, of course. And then I said, I don't know why I said this, but I said, Derek, what do you think now, a young man? And pause in the room. Everybody knew this was a moment. Dead silence, he looked at me and he said, oh, that's easy. I know today that you just love me. My father. Lord, I don't know what else to say. There's probably nothing else to say. I don't know what to do. Just to pray right now. Offer myself up one more time. As a, as a, your chosen son, one of your beloved sons. Use me as a son in a broken world. Give me courage. Let your love fill me up. Let it be all over me so there's no place where it's wounded that I'm afraid to go. Or that even if I'm afraid, I'll go anywhere because I know my Abba is with me. And Father, I'm praying that for my brothers here. I'm praying this for their families. I'm praying for our sisters who so graciously served us today. I'm praying that something, maybe, maybe this is just not another end of the year. I don't talk. Please don't let it be that. In some way, Father, help us as broken sons see you today more clearly than we ever have. You walked into the orphanage, and while in our hearts we're going, you don't want me, Lord. We think the orphanage director is whispering in your ear saying, you, you could do better. And you whispered back to that orphanage director, I know this son. I know Kevin. 
and I know all of his baggage, and I gotta tell you today, I choose him to be mine. A lot of wound in our room here today, Lord. Long healing journey to know you as Father and to know ourselves as adopted sons, but maybe a little piece of that journey can happen even today as we're leaving this room to begin to see your loving eyes toward us. As I'm about to hear you say, I choose you, son. I know it all. And I choose you because of my love for you. Let go of the ideologies. Let of, of gripping them so tight and let go of all those other labels. Let me come close to you. Let me surround you with my love. Let me help you to live out of desperation, not discipline. Let me help you to live out of love, not fear. Let me give you courage to not lust for safety, but to move into our broken world, no matter what the cost. Would you do that for me, Lord, today? Take me a step closer. Take me just a bit more deeply into your heart. Will you do that for my brothers? In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for his glory, for the benefit of our wounded world, we pray. Amen. Pastor. Amen. has great faith doing the mic to me, but now, uh, y'all know I'm Amy, and you also know, though, that I'm a friend. Somebody say he's Arvin Road, first friends. Amen. 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 Back in the day, Pastor Kevin and I were kind of hooking it up. I, I betted him. He didn't know that. You didn't know that. So I told you. I called Amy Pastors up in Detroit. And I asked them about this man. And they said, he's the real deal. Remember what I told you? That? 